right, everyone. Welcome to the Crypto for Planners podcast this week. And this week, uh, I'm joined, of course, by my usual co-host, Steve Larson. Uh, but we're bringing in a special guest, Matthew Koleski of Arbor Digital and Arbor Capital is going to join us. And today we're going to talk about the famous, uh, you know, the SEC proposed rule called the what safeguarding rule for RIAs or the enhanced safeguarding rule for registered investment advisors, something we refer to as the new custody rule sometimes. Uh, and what Matt Koleski did was helped us write uh, a comment, comments back to the SEC based on this proposed rule. So we're going to talk about the comments that PlanarDAO made. We're going to talk about some of the comments that Steve and, and his firm uh, sent back to the SEC. And then we're also going to go into a little commentary on this rule and some of the other comments that have come in from you know various uh, companies, organizations, people. Uh, we're going to talk with Matt a little bit about what those have meant and, and kind of what we see as a future, what might happen here. So with that, Matt, you know what? I'm going to let you give you like one minute to introduce yourself because we don't like to spend a whole lot of time on introductions here. Uh, we'll say hi to Steve and then we will jump right in. I'll take less than a minute. Yeah. My name is Matthew Koleski. I'm uh, president of Arbor Capital and also serve as a chief compliance officer. So, and we had discussed in, in Planner DAO, right, responding to different things. And this is a great opportunity for the for the DAO to weigh in. And so I've been running the compliance uh, group there. So yeah, and with some of your assistance, Steve and Adam as well, we submitted a response on May 7th to the safeguarding client assets update. And Matt, you did a you did a great job on that. We're excited to to dive into that a little bit. Yeah, the so the rule here to bring everybody up to speed is the uh, safeguarding safeguarding advisory client assets rule. So it's a proposed rule. It was open for comment through May eighth, uh, in which point um, Matt got in his comments the day before, um, and it looks like a lot of people can't read a calendar, so they're still coming in, but that's okay. Uh, we'll we'll get there, and so. Um, again, if you're new to this rule, this is the SEC putting more rules on investment advisors, uh, and a lot of it is also related to crypto and digital assets, where they're trying to uh, regulate organizations they have no business regulating. And let's kind of let's kind of jump into that. So, Matt, let's let's start as high level as we can. What what, what were your major takeaways when you read through it the first time? <laughs> That's a loaded question. Yeah, I was. Uh... <laughs> A little bit surprised and um, had to read read it twice, actually, to really get the full gist of what they're trying to do and then actually talk to other people in the industry to see what their response was. So starting at the, the highest level and I'll and get into some of the comments, but I think it's also important to say one of the response that, that we submitted that um, we touched on digital assets, because Steve, you mentioned it does get into that. It also gets into some other uh, issues just around traditional custody and new relationships with advisors. And I didn't exactly respond to that, but I starting at the highest level. And one of the things, you know, I'm not an attorney. I don't think Steve, you are Adam. And so I, I'm always very careful to, you know, this, uh, what we, we're, we're providing isn't legal opinion. It's not legal advice or anything like that. My background is in, is in finance and in economics. And I like to think about the second order effects. And so one of the things I started with, was saying this is going to be not great for advisors. It's going to push homogenization of asset and advice delivery. It's going to make it more costly for advisors to comply. And it's going to just drive industry consolidation. And the takeaway for me, and I think for the DAO members, is 
It harms the end client because there's less choice, there's less innovation. And then honestly, it's just literally driving more like what I like to say, homogenized advice and asset management delivery, which so the end client, the average investor is harmed by that lack of choice and lack of innovation. And I think it's important to start there. And then do, then diving into what specifically responded to with digital assets, because there's this idea of custody, right, in not just traditional, which that's been pretty well defined and works fairly well. Um, Steve, you and I had some back and forth. I think the SEC was using this, some obscure settlement to try to use that as a reason to really just expand this custody rule. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into the details there, but it was really interesting because they brought it up multiple times. Um, and why is that relevant to crypto? Well, it's relevant because how trades can settle on chain versus at a, custo- at a, at a qualified custodian that's generally state chartered. And it's really going to come with attacking those two ways. And so it's going to make it very, the end result being, it would be very, very difficult for advisors who are managing even some of some of how the wallet structures are, it's going to make it very difficult for advisors to manage assets for clients. And Steve, one of the things that I really loved about your, your comment was, you know, we're not creating demand for this, but we're being asked to supply compliance solutions. And this really makes it far more difficult for us to actually advise on digital assets. Again, whether that's on a, in a wallet infrastructure, or even if it's just using a traditional um, Gemini or Coinbase type of a qualified custodian. Yeah, th- th- those are all great, great points. And we need to dive into all of them. But but yeah, you, you, I think at the, at the highest level it is, it's, it's going to hurt competition. And so, for example, you know, if you remember when Sarbanes-Oxley came out, you know, nearly nearly two decades ago now, and, and you guys are both kind of at ground zero for that in Houston, uh, where that started with, with when, when Enron uh, kind of started the run on Sarbanes-Oxley there and, and made all those dominoes fall. But what happened is the cost of compliance for accounting firms really went up significantly and they started merging. And we went from this great network of independent, innovative, um, you know, local type accounting firms. And they just kept getting acquired and acquired and acquired. And pretty soon, you know, the big six is down to the big four. But not just that, uh, you you were having a hard time finding a five or six person shop in your city because they were all getting getting bought up by regionals. And so whether it's CPA firms or banks or insurance companies, uh, rules like this make it more likely the RIA industry is going to go the same route. And whereas we do respond to customer demand, um, a lot of the innovation comes from the one-man shops and the one-person shops and, and the smaller places. And that's where we see it. And, and they're really going to discourage those from being around at all. So um, I'd echo those comments, Matt. It's, it's frustrating that they are going to hurt consumers with this. Hey, real quick, guys, I want to jump in here. Can you both, because you both did most of the writing on the comments, I just got to read them later and, and make little side notes uh, and, and comments to them. Can you go through just a little bit of detail as to why we think it will cause that uh, that consolidation? Why, why we think it will be harder for advisors to distribute, to, to deliver their advice? What's going to make it either more difficult or more expensive? Yeah, I can jump in on that one. And that to me is less around digital assets and more around the uh, additional requirements that an RIA will have to uh, reach with its qualified custodian and even on the traditional side. And so there's this you know, onerous additional, what is it, quarterly list of things and additional insurance that the custodian is going to have to provide and all these checks and balances. And literally, it's just going to take, you know, new, 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 
new almost new new staff to do this right so like I'm, i think about the my existing ria structure that we have and we have you know a couple of us that work in compliance it's like we'd have to hire at least another full-time person to just engage with our qualified custodian hammer out these agreements and then provide the continuing and ongoing upkeep of them which frankly and i know steve you and i kind of talked about this like that there's nothing really wrong there's nothing really broken with the traditional custodial relationship and so adam does that answer your question uh it, it does it helps steve any, any more specifics as to what um the custodians and, and from what i read the custodians have to um offer some some bit of um uh, I guess, guarantees or, or something to the advisor who has to then pass that on to the client. And in, and in most relationships, it's already there, but in many relationships, it just becomes very onerous and costly. Yeah, I think there's a couple ways to look at it. So the first one is, okay, so Schwab has to create a bunch more forms that you sign and throw in your file, right? And it's like, okay, maybe, right? Maybe for maybe for the Schwab business, it is. We They're going to do whatever it takes to stay in front of investment advisors. They're going to make it nice and easy for us. I'd imagine that's going to happen. Um, but then what happens on emerging custodians? You know, what happens, mm-hmm. w- would an altruist even get into this business if they had an extra 30% compliance burden on top and some of the innovations they've, they've brought? Uh, state chartered trust companies who they're clearly trying to drive out play a huge role um, in providing alternative investments and really, you know, options outside of the public markets and, and they're attacking them. And so it's not so much that the big players won't devote the resources so we can comply. It's that it really just chokes off um, innovation and new options and solutions for clients. And if we do want to do that, then the burden is completely on us because they still won't clearly say what is and is not a, a qualified custodian. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they'll say, hey, come, come in and talk to us if you don't know if you're a qualified custodian, at which, at which point they won't return your calls, obviously. So it, I think that's the frustration, Adam, is that um, it's going to eliminate a lot of um, innovation. And then if we do want to do some use a custodian that's not one of the, the big four, really, quite frankly, as a firm, we're going to be taking on risk and we're going to be taking on staff and personnel to make sure it's complying. And I think that's where a lot of the frustration is. Steve, they might answer your call with, with a Wells notice. I mean, <laughs> they've been doing that recently. So. They, they might. I'm, I, I'm probably due for one year before too long. Right. And let's keep in mind, this is what, a 435 page document or something like that that got sent out. And from what we've read, and, and of course, I can say we're a little bit biased because this whole document, this whole rule is very anti-crypto, anti-digital assets, of course. But it was almost under the guise of we're trying to solve a, you know, a bigger problem here with custody. And all of us read it. And I think all of us had the same thought of what problem with traditional custody actually trying to solve. It seemed like there were some really fringe cases that they were trying to solve for, which we came up with the idea of that those, those cases are actually just fraud. And we actually already have laws against stealing someone's money in fraud. We don't need extra guardrails against it. Yeah. One of the, and I guess we can jump into that real quick. And this is something that Steve and I spent a lot of time with a year, year and a half ago with the DeFi toolkit, right? Which, we discussed what a DVP settlement was, but to your point, Adam, and what I think that we mentioned earlier, it's they literally have in here an advisor, for instance, I'm, I'm reading now directly from the proposal, could use its discretionary authority over its client assets to instruct an, an issuer's transfer agent or administrator to sell the client interests and then settle the proceeds 
into a, an, an account that the advisor controls. Like, well, that's theft, right? That's just outright fraud. And so nobody does that. And if they do, they should be punished and caught because, the, and that is just, you know, for us as fiduciaries, it's kind of mind boggling that, that they're even going to use that as a justification to really launch this, yeah, 434 page document. But it is something that's on their mind because it's referenced multiple times in this document, which was what was so surprising. And that's one of the comments that we address right off the bat after I discussed this high level kind of second order effects as we address this specifically, Steve, because yeah, this is something that you and I talked about at length around how trades get settled what, through a, a non-delivery versus payment um, mm -hmm. specifically. And, and and ultimately that's why I decided to not include any crypto or digital asset references in, in my response, because so much of this was so ridiculous on its face. Um, <laughs> that I didn't want to uh, it to go in what, what I imagine happens is they just say, Oh, here's the crypto responses. And then, and then let's maybe here's the ones we're going to look at, which I'm sure isn't the case. Right. But, but that, that's certainly the frame of mind they have us in right now. Mm -hmm. So my thought was, Hey, if I can prove this case without even bringing up crypto, maybe it'll, it'll have a bigger impact. Um, which obviously wishful thinking that it'll have an impact at all, but that, you know, we, we we uh, power on nonetheless, but uh, the DVP is interesting because we did go over that uh, map back with the dual back with the toolkit, and for advisors who you know have never run their own firm or dealt with this, basically um, DVP and non DVP is basically hey if you trade on the New York Stock Exchange, the exchange is instant, it goes to and from the same account, whereas some type of private security where you're wiring money out and then later you get evidence of that. Uh, investment would be a non-DVP. Um, and so, so much of the rule focuses around that. And again, my issue with that is that it's it's mostly an edge case. Most firms don't do any of that. Um, the, the bulk of them simply do not. Now you're getting into to private funds and larger family offices and, you know, where that's more common. And they're trying to put all these burdens on smaller RIAs that are just running ETF allocation portfolios for all their clients. And they have, now they have to comply with all these all of these rules for something they're quite frankly, never going to encounter. And, and sorry to keep ranting here, but then on top of that, then they started asking the questions of, Hey, should, should we also require internal, you know, audits, independent audits, surprise mm -hmm. audits of internal controls. And it's like, what, what are you going to audit? We don't have the records. Like we get our statements from, from the custodian. Like, what are you going to audit? It just, so much of it was nonsensical. I would, I, I didn't put this in the comment and I don't think we've chatted about this, but I think there's still egg on their face, specifically the SEC for Madoff. They do reference Madoff several times in this, in the opening statements around, and you're, they're still reeling and, and feeling the impacts of an outright Ponzi scheme that literally was right under their nose. And so whether that's, uh, you know, good or bad for this, it's interesting that it's still referenced in there. And I think it frames some of how they approach this. Like we can't let that happen again. And it's true, but you know, we, I do, I did specifically get into crypto and digital assets because they were this it was it was pretty heavy throughout the document until we get to the very end around custody and even the traditional custodians. And so they have a again, I'm going to read right from the document here. They say, additionally, we understand that many advisors may be reluctant to provide a full range of advisory services to their clients because of concerns that a market for custodial services to safeguard these assets has not yet fully developed. Okay, so then we go back to why hasn't it been fully developed, partly because there's no clarity. And what I use this as an opportunity to was to use the Fidelity digital asset um, 
uh, institutional report that has been great that Fidelity has been putting out every year to just uh, showcase to the SEC, you know, what are some concerns from U.S. based advisors? And I put in there you know, regulatory classification of certain coins, which, you know, Chair Gensler couldn't even answer whether Ethereum was a security in Congress. So but we were supposed to have all these answers. The second one is a lack of clarity around qualified custody was at 32 percent and then lack of clarity around regulation. So there are three main answers in this question that Fidelity posed to advisors in the U.S. is what is slowing down adoption? And three of them were all around regulatory clarity for you know, different reasons. And I, so I put that in there to highlight it because they did ask for, you know, hey, if you can highlight studies and different things like that. So, um, yeah. So, just, oh, go ahead, Adam. Right. So, it, again, it seems like so much, um, so much upheaval around trying to solve a problem that's not really there. And from our purposes, of course, Steve, like you went above and beyond to not point out crypto, but there's going to be a lot of thought of this rule is really put in place more than anything to shoo out the crypto custodians so that we as advisors can't help our clients with, with crypto as a way to kind of, uh, in, in the, in a roundabout way, I guess, kick, kick crypto out of the country, possibly. But what it's actually going to do is hurt investors because they're going to do it anyway, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're going to go invest in crypto anyway. They're going to set up their own accounts uh, because they can, because this rule doesn't affect the individual investor. And they're probably going to mess it up because that's what we're here. The advisors are here to go, look, if you want to invest in something, if you want to put some of your money into it, let's figure out how to allocate for it. Let's figure out how to make sure that it's as safe as we can make it. Let's ask questions like that and make it a part of your plan, which is our role. So let us do our job. And th what this is basically saying is we don't want you to do your job because we think that crypto will just go away if we don't give you the tools to do it. Yeah, and it's it's been difficult you know, reading reading this and literally seeing it being attacked at, at, from various angles. And one of them is, right, we're fiduciaries and we've always whether this is whether these are securities or not, we've always taken care and said whatever the SEC decides. We, these these assets are covered by our fiduciary obligation and our duty of care to our clients, right? And so we are, you know, we're the professionals, we're the grownups in the room that aren't, you know, going into some crazy exchange and levering up and clients need this services. And there's a couple other uh, responses in here where they do really go after and attack the qualified custodial specific to crypto relationship with advisors. And, and at the end of the day, if this passes, it will, it will make it prohibitively difficult to even have a relationship as an advisor with somebody like a Coinbase or a Gemini, because the SEC will not really, even, even though they won't tell us what is a qualified custodian, they just push this farther away from us to and make it really difficult for us to actually say, you know what, in all the work that we've done, we do feel that they are qualified custodians. So that, that gets taken away. Um, and, Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point. And, and you know, the SEC is doing what I don't even think it's fair to say what it's historically done, but what it likes to do now, which is just say, hey, you know, real nice RIA you have there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. And they're, they're just kind of putting, a, putting us on notice that, hey, there's, they're, they're raising the stakes um, in as many industries as they can for being involved in crypto. And this is a shot across our 
bow now. So we have to say, hey, you know, is is the the risk now worth the reward? And they're counting on a huge chunk of advisors, which now means an even bigger chunk of clients that they'll just say, no, it's it's probably not worth it. And they don't even have to. And quite frankly, this rule could get shut down and the average advisor would still have it in their head and be adverse to crypto at some point. And the mission's kind of already accomplished regardless. And that's why I think forums like this and the work you did, Matt, and, and what we're trying to do at Planet Out is, is so important because, you know, because as an individual RIA, I mean, yeah, it's, it's terrifying, right? Like there's, you know, I've, I've, I've been in plenty of audits and came out of them all okay, but didn't make them, didn't make them any, any more fun. But but there is strength in numbers. And mm-hmm. the, the fact is, there is nothing unusual about investing in digital assets. There's nothing unusual about using Coinbase. There's nothing even remotely against the regulations about any of it. But they're certainly trying to imply that there is. And th- that appears to be the goal. And there's a good... Um... Adam, I might be jumping the gun a little bit here, but you know, I've read, I've read a lot of the other responses and some of the ones that came from states and even some of the uh, representatives in Congress talk about this idea of principles-based rulemaking instead of just very prescriptive, like you have to follow this. And principles-based rulemaking is around, let's just set the framework up here, right? Let's make it clear and safe, but we'll let, let it be open to the advisors to interpret what is a qualified custodian, what is a proper relationship as a fiduciary, right? Because those are well-defined. And so a couple of the responses from the folks that I just mentioned, there's 12 states that were involved uh, in this, talked about, you know, this principles-based rulemaking, and that's what the SEC should focus on. There's even people saying that they're going well beyond their their current re- uh, regulatory scope. And so it'll be interesting to see see that. But Steve, I just want to make that point because, yeah, it, it does feel like we're getting attacked and it's nice to have as from an advisor perspective, and it's nice to actually see some people in power that have, that are responding to this uh, in a meaningful way. Yeah. Uh, did either of you notice a comment from CFP board or FPA or any, anything like that on here? I haven't looked close enough myself. I haven't even, like we were talking, there's been like you know, 40 of the or 50 comments that have come in just in the last week. Um, and I just picked up on a couple of them. I did not see one from the FPA board of the CFP. I, yeah, I don't remember. I, mean, I feel like I saw something on Twitter or LinkedIn or something where the CFP board did uh, did submit a comment, but I I don't remember, so don't quote me on that. Uh, I haven't read a lot of them because I, I'll probably get bored in the first paragraph. And by the fourth <laughs> one, it's probably, a lot of them are probably saying a lot of the same things we are, right? It's mm-hmm. going through and yeah. saying... Much of this was clearly written by someone who, one, has never run an RIA, has never operated a firm and doesn't know what it takes, and then is really not interested in looking out for the best interest of the investors mm-hmm. or definitely not the best interest of RIAs who are trying to you know, run a, run a business helping people with their money. And that's what it comes down to. 99.999% of us are not trying to run a business so that we can steal our clients' money. We're trying to help our clients so that so that they allocate correctly so that they can get to their goals, so that they can go do their jobs and not worry too much about what's happening with their growth and what's happening towards their retirement, that we can help them along that path. And as you said, Matt, in, in terms of principle-based rulemaking, that should be the principle, right? Let us go do our job mm-hmm. and, and give some framework that says you can fit within these guardrails. And to me, it, it's the, a little bit of the equivalent of like, all right, we're going to like, here are the rules for driving. There's a speed limit. There's 
you, you drive on the, on the highway or you drive on the street, white lines mean something, yellow lines mean something, stoplights mean something. Mm-hmm. We're going to give you a speed limit. We're not going to put something on your car that says you may only go the speed limit that, that throttles your car down at, a, at certain streets. You get to go do that so that the flow of traffic can work. Occasionally, if we stop you for going too fast, you'll get a ticket because it's against the rules. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We don't put something in your car that says when you're on this street, your car may only go 45 miles an hour because then there's no point in having a speed limit. That is all right. Your, your car's accelerator is now the speed limit. So there's no need for extra rules like that. There's no need for extras like that because you have a principle. We're trying to make it. We're, we're trying to make everyone's investments a little bit safer. We we understand that some clients are going, some investors are going to want to invest in digital assets. They're going to want to invest in other types of assets, alternatives and such. Our job as the advisors is given the ability to do that, fit it in their, in their plan and do so in a safe way. We kind of have all that already. We don't need extra safeguards. And I would, I would echo that and also add on something that I found particularly frustrating is the lack of vision, right? What do I mean by that? This is, transformational technology that can actually make an auditor's and a regulator's job easier, right? Auditing things that are happening on chain. You can go look at a wallet and see what a different rate, you know, what a ratio is or or what's in it and, you know, how much is loaned out against it, right? And so the transparency of this asset class and the potential there is is exponential in terms of time and time saving and cost saving for advisors and regulators, but there's absolutely none of it in here. And I was at, a, at a, the IA compliance conference in, in March and we were engaged with various members of the SEC and literally asking them about this. And you know, even AI came up and their response was, oh, we're not even ready for AI. And I was like, well, you know what? It came last year. Um, and to have to not even have a response for technological innovation, which is only going to accelerate, that's concerning for, um, for me as, as, a, as an RIA. Owner. One thing I was curious about, Matt, um, if, if this rule were to go through uh, just as written right now, um, <laughs> w- w- you know, if you guys have discussed it at Arbor, both capital and digital, what what are some of the, the things you'll actually have to do differently that, that, that come to mind? Oh, we'd have to um, probably leave our current uh, qualified custodian because it would be much harder to comply with that. We'd have to as you mentioned earlier, Steve, on the traditional side, we use uh, Charles Schwab. And so we'd have to engage with them and in, in whatever new fun, adventurous ways uh, that <laughs> to, to, to meet the demands for this new um, regulatory regime. Um, so yeah, it's just a tremendous amount of time, maybe even, you know, hire additional people and, and spend more money just to, just to comply with some things that really aren't broken. Specific to the digital side, I mean, yes, it would push things more on chain and we would probably look to engage more with, with wallet infrastructure um, and because there's some ways to uh, not take custody. And But again, it's a different advice and delivery method than what we're used to. So we have to almost change the nature of our business on the digital side. Yeah, that's... The, the, those are great points uh, at our firm. So a couple things come to mind. Uh, number one, we we just signed up with um, uh, I don't know, six months ago with Pontera, formerly known as FIAX. Mm-hmm. And that's basically where um, a client can enter their 401k credentials. And if they're part of a larger 401k, you can go in and, and manage that account for them um, and make sure that they're properly allocated and rebalanced and 
um, you know, change, uh, you know, and you can keep an eye on what's going on. You get the updates that won't be legal under the new rule. So you'd basically be placing discretionary trades at a non-qualified custodian. Um, mm-hmm. So in general, those wouldn't be qualified custodians. So, so that wouldn't work. Um, and then we, I think like a lot of big firms, um, uh, in whatever method they're there, do business directly with a fund company or somebody like American funds, um, whether it be for 529s or simples or old legacy accounts uh, and, and simply investing cash there or moving from one fund or another, moving from, um, you know, within a 529 that you manage, you know, moving from a, a, a target date to a different target date or something out, that'd be discretionary trading at a non-qualified custodian. You couldn't do that either. Mm-hmm. Um and that's before we even get a, some potential insurance applications. So um, there, there, there's some operational things that this would affect if it if it goes in. And uh, how are fund companies going to work directly with advisors? Like everything's going to need to. It's all going to have to be non-discretionary now, which is going to hurt the client. They don't they don't come to us so they can place their own trades or, or tell us. Uh, right. I get there's a lot of business that out there, but but they come to us to not just do the financial plan, but then to implement it and make sure it's done right and properly and timely. And there's no screw ups and um, they're taking away our ability to do that on a lot of fronts here. Yeah. And Steve, yeah, we use Pontera FX as well. So that would, that would definitely impact us. And yeah, it's making it right. There are people that can do this on their own, right? This is the traditional you know, advisor relationship, but there's people that say here, you know, we trust you. We want you to manage our assets and our portfolios based on an agreed upon, um, you know, allocation and stay within parameters. And then we go and do it for them. And yeah, there's many aspects of that that we'd have to take away. And one of the other points that I made in this response, right. And I think, which we didn't talk about is it's, it would drive more of an a, uh, AUA model assets under advisement and so and away from assets under management. And Steve, as you pointed out, you know, there's a lot less service and requires the end client to do a lot more. And I mean, how many times over the years have you said, Hey, you know, here's a 401k potential allocation. And then you check in and you know, the advice, the, the end client just doesn't do it. It's not that they don't care about it. They just have yeah. other things going on in their day. Yeah. And so this would just push more of the relationship back to the, back to the end client. And frankly, they don't, a lot of them don't want to. You know, the, the other thing, Matt, and I don't know if we talked about this. I, I, I put it in one of my comments, but so much of this is, is predicated on basically including discretionary trading in the definition of custody. So basically, if we can place trades for our clients without contacting them first, that's discretionary trading that now equals custody, which now equals these rules, which is supposedly gets rid of fraud, right? And so there's a little bit of talk about access at different custodians, but how does that change if it's a non-discretionary trade? So if I call a client and say, hey, can I do this? Then I suddenly can't steal the money or then I suddenly can't deposit in a different account. Like in so much of this, the discretionary part isn't tied to, to any of it. Right. And if you called the client and, and asked their permission first, it wouldn't change anything as far as what an advisor can do or any of the wrongdoing they could do. And again, it, it, it's just more of this, these non sequiturs they're putting together. One of their examples is, well, what if you place a trade and then you take the cash and you steal it? And you're like, <laughs> what does the trade have to do with it? If there's cash in there, you can do it without a trade. It's just over and over. These things make no sense that they're talking about. It's frustrating. It doesn't because there's already right, right. There's already rules and laws around 
exactly what you just described. And this goes back to that principle-based rulemaking, right? They're based, they're being so prescriptive to get, you know, getting into the minutia. And Steve, you talked about discretion, right? And I think one of the comments that you talked about, or maybe we, you, you and I had this offline, it was discretion, you know, discretion really doesn't have a lot to, doesn't have a lot to do with custody, right? Custody is working fine. Traditional custody is working great. It's even working pretty well in the, in the digital assets and it's getting better. Yep. And so the, using this idea of a discretionary trade now is custody. And yes, we know there's some exceptions to that, but they're really just using that as like this wedge to get drive that, drive their nails further into the day-to-day operations of an advisor's uh, workflow and relationships. And, and I feel like, and you guys can correct me again, because you probably read it over many more times than I did. We still don't have a concrete definition of qualified custodian. No, nope. no through all this, right? So it's now, there's more on you, the advisor, to put your client's assets with a qualified custodian. And there are more instances when you have to have those assets with a quote, qualified custodian, but we're still not gonna tell you what that means. We're still gonna leave it up to you. And those maybe qualified custodians are gonna have to give you paperwork and insurance and everything, explaining why they think they are, which you then have to pass on to your clients saying, here's why we think they're a qualified custodian, but it's all going to be up to the whims of the SEC at some point, right? Like the, there's still no concrete definition, which is really what we want, right? Just tell us what it is. And, and, and then those custodians can maybe go register and go, Hey, we're qualified. We fit all your bullet points. The other option is just go again, Matt, based on the transformational technology that is blockchain technology, crypto, DeFi, whatever it is, maybe there's a separate set of rules, that says here's what a qualified custodian is in the traditional world because it's because we've had these rules in place for decades. It says here's how you hold here's how you can hold assets. Here's what here's how you transfer assets. Uh, here's how you custody assets. The crypto world is different because we have wallets and technology and things that can get hacked and exploited. And and we're not quite sure as of a few, I think, court rulings last week. We're still not quite sure if the assets that I put, you know, at, at Coinbase are. Uh, property of Coinbase or Coinbase creditors or me or, or whatever have different rules for them. Like that, it it seems like you don't need a 435 page document that makes it harder for everyone to do business. When in reality, all you want to do is say, here's what a qualified custodian is in crypto. Cause we, there's still in this entire document, there's no paragraph that says, here's what it is. Nope. Nope. And, and I think Steve, we, uh, three of us were on a call with the sec, right. And we asked that <laughs> question, frankly, and their answer was, we can't tell you <laughs> like, like it's the, yeah. it, it's the formula for Coca-Cola or something. And if, if you go even beyond just digital assets, right. They talk, they even mention other, other things, right. We advise, we help people with all kinds of financial questions. And they talk about, I think the SEC even uses like lumber or art or watches or collectibles. And it's like, so do all of those have to be held at a qualified custodian now? And like, it, to me, it just opens up an entirely new can of worms. I, it just, boggles the mind that uh, that this is going to be pushed onto the entire advisory relationship with a client. This idea of qualified custodian, which we, yet we still don't have a definition of what that means. Yeah. And, and you wonder if, you know, principle, principles based regulation just, just opens up regulation by enforcement. Um, and it's like, they want to keep it open-ended on purpose so they can come in and, and hammer the enforcement later and they're doing that obviously on a much larger scale with with Coinbase. Um, to get back to your point, Adam, about when we had the call and and they told us uh, the SEC um, 
and they told us a lot of nothing. Um, but the one thing they said over and over was, hey, our rules are independent of the technology used to implement them. And that was about all they would say over and over. And then we see rules like this come out and it's clearly not, you know, because they are targeting new technology and they are propping up legacy technology um, and they are picking winners and losers. And so even the part they were comfortable talking about, I quite frankly, I, you know, I, I question wh whether that was ever said in good faith, knowing that there, this crackdown is coming. Anecdote on that. I was at Adam, you were there too in consensus a couple of weeks ago and there is a large uh, traditional firm and I had, spent some time talking with them one one let's let's talk about something positive here for a second they they said that they were had conversations with regulators around what we were just talking about earlier like auditing and custody and how you can use this new technology to make everyone's lives and jobs easier and they said yeah we saw a light bulb go off with with mm -hmm. regulators so that was at least encouraging but there's like i said there's none of that in this 434 page document <laughs> to actually use technology to make everybody's jobs easier, lives easier. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, serve the client better. Yep. Right. So I, I think, um, I mean, we, we can go ahead and start wrapping up guys. Is there anything else that you want to talk about with regard to the uh, new safeguarding, maybe safeguarding, maybe rule uh, for client assets with RIAs, also known as the new custody rule, which by the way, the, the, the proposed rule, like we, we have to get into this. The proposed rule was of the five SEC commissioners was voted four to one in favor of this new proposed rule. Of course, the one dissension being Hester Peirce, who we had, you know, a webinar a few weeks ago. Um, the one dissension was Hester Peirce. So all these comments, the goal is to I guess, flip two more SEC commissioners or get a new rule written or, or get it thrown out or something, right? So anything else you guys want to talk about in regards to either the rule or the, the comments written by Planner Dow or Steve? I would just say, just real quick, uh, to follow up on that point, Adam, the, I was at the uh, compliance conference in March and Commissioner Ayuda, who did vote with the four, he was not supportive, but he wanted it to at least be brought into the light. And so he seemed to indicate that he would not support it going forward. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll only have to flip one more. Probably won't be Gensler though. <laughs> Probably not. Good. Good bet. Now my, my final thought would be on the, on the, on the process. Um, I've never, uh, I've never left a review on Amazon, let alone wrote a comment letter to the sec. So um, anybody who has any interest, I would encourage to do this on this rule. Um, Cause apparently even past the deadline, you can keep submitting <laughs> Or a future rule, but it, it was it was a really good way to not only get detailed, but but organize my thoughts, collaborate with people I respect, like the two of you on here, um, and other members of the DAO, and really start to get 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 some coherent thoughts together, um, and a good way to channel channel some frustration and anger. So it's, it might be something I uh, I do again in the future. But uh, uh, no, great work on your letter, Matt, and representing the DAO, and I uh, I appreciate it. I didn't did a fantastic job. Oh, well, thanks. And you guys were in instrumental in helping me review it and push the final submission. So, right. well, uh, thank you for, uh, for everyone who listened. And, and again, this is the kind of thing uh, we're trying to do at, at Planner Dow. There'll be uh, undoubtedly more rules that come out or more proposed rules. And, and we're going to try to, you know, propose comments or, or submit comments based on what we think is 
in the best interest of advisors who are trying to make digital assets a part of their practice, because that's really our, our goal here. So again, thank you, uh, Matt Koleski. Thanks, Steve. It was good to chat with both of you about how much, how frustrated we are with the, the SEC and, and this proposed rule in general. Uh, good to talk to you both. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening out there. We're going to have some uh, links, if we can, to the actual SEC proposed rule, to the comments that, that were submitted here by Matt and, and by Steve, so anyone can read them. And um, thank you very much for listening to the Crypto for Planners podcast. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.